It's um, a, pl a pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Ian, Dr. Ian Campbell. Um, I'm sure Ian is known to many of you as uh, a highly respected local GP. He's been in practice here for the past, the past 20 odd years. But he's also got a national profile around obesity. Uh, in 2000, he um, founded the National Obesity Forum um, to try and raise the awareness of the, the really coming significant public health issue that is, that is obesity. Doing that, he then became medical advisor to the all-party parliamentary group on obesity. He's advised the Health Select Committee on these matters, and he's been a visiting lecturer at a number of other universities. Since 2006, he's co-chaired the East Midlands Obesity Test Group, and in 2008, he joined the Department of Health's Healthy Weight Delivery Committee. He's, high, he's well and widely published, uh, and he's the author of what is, I think, a fantastically named website, www.fatmanslim.com, the first men-only weight loss program. Uh, he's appeared uh, on numerously on uh, both the radio and the television, um, particularly on Channel 4's, and this is again a great name for a, a, a program, The World's Biggest Boy. So, Ian, with that background, uh, we look forward to, uh, to uh, hearing you talk to us about obesity, a corporate success, or a personal favour. Dr. Campbell. Thank you very much. I love to see everyone. And uh, can I say that uh, I couldn't count the number of talks I've given on obesity. And I also say, I think, I think tonight is the one which gives me most pride. So thank you very much, uh, Doug, for asking me to speak to you all. And I hope that I can rock your boat this evening. Because what I don't want to do is to tell you the simple facts about obesity that you know already. I'm not going to talk about calories in and calories out particularly. There are people in this audience who know far more about it than I do. And I'm not going to talk about the comorbid disease that results from obesity, because I think you know that already. Ten years ago, we might have been having that conversation. And I, I do still remember pretty much being laughed out of court when I suggested that a cardiovascular risk factors in Italy, that obesity should be up there as one of the risk factors for cardiovascular disease. I don't think we'd be laughing now. But we'll see. The challenge tonight was to give you a slant on obesity that was different to usual. And so, I'm going to challenge you to consider whether this problem of obesity really is something that has come about as a corporate success or a personal failure. And by corporate, I mean the body corporate. Is it we as a society or a government that are responsible for the problem? Have we created it? Or is it a commercial success for those who have something to gain from it financially? Is obesity the individual's fault or the result of an obesogenic society? So I'm going to take you to a few places to try and challenge your ideas about this. And I welcome any questions throughout the talk. If you feel exercised enough, just put your hand up and shout. And uh, if not, we'll wait till the end and see what we have to say. Some years ago, I overheard a lady on Radio 4 Today program. And it's incredulous that she said this now. She said, this is two years ago, she said, you know, the government making such a mess. If only the country were run by bankers, we'd be in a much better state than we are today. 
she represented the senior bankers, of course. And this, this chap, Sir Derek Wanless, used to be the manager of NatWest Bank, or the CEO of NatWest Bank. He turned his hand to public health. But indeed, he's become very respected because his work appears to be, it's pushed to hit the button. And here are some facts that he came up with. He said that in 2005, 21% of British adults were classified as obese. Predicted to rise to about one-third of men and 28% of women by 2010. And he recognised that type 2 diabetes and heart disease were intricately linked to obesity, one of the fundamental causes of it. He recognised that obesity caused an average nine years of uh, reduction in life expectancy, and the cost of the NHS were around about £1 billion a year. If you look at it in the greater sense, we're probably talking about 3.5 billion pounds a year. It's a very significant problem. And the issue for me is not just what it's doing to us as a society now, but trying to step back a little bit and ask yourself, why have we managed to get here? Because, you know, it, if it really was as simple as people just eating a little less and moving about a bit more, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Very few people want to be morbidly obese. There has to be more to it than that. So if we go back and look at childhood, we can see that already, before children get to junior school, they're showing signs of increasing weight. Now the argument also goes that even prenatally, the things we can do to reduce the incidence of obesity. Immediately postnatally with breastfeeding, we know that that lessens the likelihood of becoming overweight and obese. But these children that Bundy looked at were in inner city Liverpool, and he showed, as you can see, that over a 10-year period, the numbers of overweight and obese children in this study group almost doubled. And these were children under the age of five who were getting so little exercise, amounted to about 20 minutes a day, instead of the recommended at least 60 minutes, perhaps even two hours. And children who were not necessarily choosing to eat unhealthily, but the children who were doing what came naturally to them, eating what was provided for them, taking exercise whenever the chance was there. These were children who were not simply greedy and lazy. These were children who were reacting to the environment within which they, they found themselves. But it goes on from infancy into junior school and then into senior school. And you can see from this chart that year on year, as we get older, more and more of us become overweight and obese. And whatever it is that we are doing in infancy, we continue to do it through childhood and we continue to do it today. The average member of this audience is gaining one or two pounds of weight every year. Quite simple. You go to Benidorm for a holiday, you put on a couple of pounds, you come back, you die, you lose one of them. Comes out for Christmas, you put on a couple of pounds over the festive season. January, you die, you lose one of them. Oops, we're still two up. Year after year, it gradually builds. It creeps up bit by bit. So gradually your sort of narrow waistband and the, your broad mind of youth change place and suddenly you become very broad around the waist and your attitude to life starts to change. Suddenly you have a weight problem. It creeps up almost without recognizing it. What is it that allows, uh, allows us to allow ourselves to get into this state? There is an argument that prehistorically, those of us who are genetically predetermined to, to hold on to weight when, when we have eaten, in other words, those who could grow fat in times of plenty were those that would survive in times of famine. 
So there is an argument that actually we're all descended from fat people. So it's only natural that we have a propensity to gain weight when food is in uh, uh, great supply. And you can see this because in the current age where we really don't go through periods of time where we go hungry, we don't go through periods of shortage of food, two-thirds of us are carrying excessive weight and almost one-third are clinically obese. So, it's argued that actually to be obese in our current environment is a pretty normal reaction, and it's the environment that is abnormal. And we'll look into this a little bit as we go through. The reasons behind obesity are very complex. And when I started to become involved in this subject, it was because of one single patient that triggered my interest. And Nottingham, I thought, which excelled in so many areas of medicine, must have some specialist physician that would understand what to do for this patient. And I couldn't find anyone. Some people had a slight interest, but there was no one who was offering an all-encompassing package to help people to lose weight. And so my interest grew, but I very quickly realized it was much more complex than dieting and being more active. There were so many sociological reasons, environmental reasons, as to why people became overweight. Environmental meaning the streets that you live in, the housing estate you're brought up in, the opportunities for employment that you have. And a simple example is this. In the 1980s, when people needed a car to go from A to B, in the 1950s, when generally speaking people didn't have a private car and things had to be built close to each other. And somebody in the States compared two communities, one built in the 50s, one built in the 80s. And the average adults in the 1950s community, built community, was taking a 10-minute walk twice a day. The average adult in the 1980s built community wasn't taking a 10-minute walk twice a week because they couldn't. The opportunity wasn't there. They needed to use a private car to get around. So the environment, the way that we build our towns and cities, impacts on our ability to be more active. It's certainly cultural. Because in some cultures, like a thing called Mauritania in, in Africa, in particular, where it's encouraged, it, women are encouraged to be very fat because it's meant to be attractive. They actually have fattening farms where they send teenage girls to fatten them up before they go on, 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 uh, on, uh, on to become engaged and married. And certainly within our own culture, there are some parts, some ethnic groups where being very large is still considered to be attractive. So there are cultural and social issues here. And one of the most surprising things, perhaps, not, again, not now, but a few years ago, most people would have been surprised, is that there's a huge genetic component. And, you know, we, we were, I guess, taught to laugh at, at uh, patients when they would say, you know, doctor, I might be overweight, but it's my genes. And we thought, what a copper. Well, actually, they were probably right. So many genes have now been identified which have a direct bearing on your predisposition to obesity. One third of us in this room have the FTO allele. Another one-third have it twice. And if you're sitting with it twice, then you are, on average, going to be carrying three kilograms of extra weight compared to someone who doesn't. And there are many more specific genes, but this is the first one which is thought to have as bearing on as many as two-thirds of the population. So we know it's distinctly genetic to the extent of maybe 50 to 70% of our likelihood of becoming obese. The other one, of course, excuse that patients use is, is, is my hormones. And again, we've pretty much been trained to laugh at that. And increasingly, of course, we're recognizing that they're probably right. And 
the, the hormone PPY336, only really discovered a few years ago, has now been shown to reduce food intake by about 25% within 24 hours of a, an intravenous infusion. And that same hormone occurs naturally after we've eaten. Some of us feel full up after we've eaten. It's not because we're self-righteously and, and, and uh, disciplined and self-controlled. It's actually because a hormone is feeding back and telling us we've had enough. And those of us that have less of it tend to eat a bit more. So maybe it is hormonal. But there are other reasons on a bigger scale that I'll try to touch on. One other thing that Nottingham is very famous for is the clothing industry. And a few years ago, Professor Stephen Gray did some research for the clothing industry to look for the average shape of a Nottingham man. And it took 3,000 of Nottingham's finest men. I gather this took him quite a long time to gather together. But eventually, he made little holograms of them and presented them back to these guys. What he found was that this has a scientific bearing, so stay with me. 50% of them wore the trousers too tight, which actually means every other bloke in this room, if you think about it. But only one in ten would admit to it. 40% of them identified their own image. Only one in five of the women identified their man's image. They didn't understand how they looked really. But at least 45% of the men recognized they were overweight. And he thought that the reason why they didn't recognize their own image was because we have this picture in our, in our head that we walk with a straight back, shoulders back, tummy in, and we strut around very smartly, very upright, and very slim. Have a look at your colleagues, those doctors in the audience, Friday afternoon, 5 o'clock, end of the week. Do they look like this? No, they don't. They look like this, don't they? They drag out, tired, their tummy sticks out. We don't really appreciate how we look. But the interesting thing about this study was one-third of them hated the stomach most of all. And when this, this study came out some years ago, it triggered my thought on the whole concept of waist circumference and ultimately led to the development of the, the website that Doug mentioned, fatmanslim.com. And the reason why it's so interesting is because it's abdominal fat, waist circumference, that actually dictates the risk of comorbid disease as a result of obesity. And more and more understanding is, is, is being gained about how fat cells around the liver, around the pancreas, around the colon, start to send out distress signals as they become full of fat to bursting point and cause inflammatory changes that ultimately lead to insulin resistance. And I think this, the scientific advances we need to see are a better understanding of what triggers this and how we can switch it off, because I think only then we will be able to deal with the medical fallout of obesity. Far better that we deal with the obese problem in the first place, of course. So what else makes this fat? Well, I've already tried to suggest that it's our genetic makeup. We know that it's hormonal, and I'll touch on that again in a moment. We also know that it's about having too much choice. If you're placed in a room where the buffet consists of a few items to choose from, you will quite naturally eat a lot less than if you're put in a buffet where there's a hundred items of multiple colours and tastes and flavours and smells. So more choice, a feature of our modern society, leads to greater consumption. A poor maternal diet also influences our future choices. If your mother, while she's carrying you, has a liking for high-fat, salty foods, you will grow up with the same 
preferences. It's often said you are what you eat, and in many cases this is true. The average diet of a British individual is very poor. A deficiency of fruit and, and vegetables, only one in five of us have, has five portions a day. And a liking for high fat, high sugary foods that is now pretty much endemic. Even the apples that we buy from the supermarket are sweeter, contain more sugar than they did a generation ago. And two other features that are often overlooked. One is a lack of sleep. Not too much sleep, a lack of sleep. And the other one is your friends. So be careful who you choose. Let's look at lack of sleep. If you have four hours or less of sleep, of sleep you run a 73% greater risk of being obese. If it's five hours, it's about 50%. And the reason for this is probably hormonal, going back to that, that point about hormones before. Sleep deprivation decreases leptin levels. Leptin, of course, increases satiety. You eat less. It also increases ghrelin levels, which has the opposite effect. And there may be other reasons other than hormonal for this. It may be that if you're sleeping more, you're more refreshed when you wake, therefore you're more active. Or maybe if you're not getting enough sleep, you're up late, you're up early in the morning, you're eating more because you're bored, just to make yourself feel better. We don't really understand, but actually the concept of being lazy and going to bed early is likely to be good for you. And this other odd one, that the friends you choose can have an impact on your likelihood of becoming obese. It's bad news. If your husband or wife is obese, there's a third greater risk of you also sharing the problem. If it's your brother or your sister, it's about 40%. And if it's your good friend, it's 57%. And the closer your friendship is, the worse it gets. And this even applies not to people who you're friendly with in the same street. It even applies to friends who may be 200 miles away. And it's been likened to, uh, by some, as a socially contagious disease. Because we start to modify our perception of what is normal, our behavioural patterns change according to, 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 to liken those around us, and we stop recognising that our shape is changing because actually we're just evolving at the same time as our fat friend. So be careful who you choose as your best friend. Now, here's some friends of mine. Some of you might recognise this chap here, Jonathan Weber, who used to work at the Nutritional Unit at Queen's, now in Birmingham. And he and I, this is my place in the corner here, uh, with these two ladies, run a training course for doctors in South Korea. And you might ask why doctors in South Korea, where they all look stick thin, want to know about obesity, but actually it's a huge problem over there, and I'm about to explain to you why it's come about. But the, if you look, if you were to Google obesity levels in Korea, it will probably come up to show you something like 6% of the adult population. When I was first asked to go out there to lecture to GPs, I didn't understand why they were bothered. Until you then start to realize that people of Chinese descent develop comorbid disease at a much lower BMI than Caucasians. And when you look at disease risk as opposed to straightforward BMI, you need to use a cutoff point of about 27 of a BMI to equate to a BMI of 13 in a white European. And that then brings their levels of obesity up to about 22, 23%. So they have a major problem there as well. But if we want to know why we develop such a problem in this country, it sometimes helps to look outside to see what's happened elsewhere. And I think this might give you a better understanding. The quite old slides are not very easy to see, but I'll try and explain it to you. This is South Korea, very far away. And this slide is looking, first of all, at the 
gross domestic product and occupations in South Korea. And South Korea was a very rudimentary, agriculturally-based, peasant-based society until 1952, when the war broke out between North and South. And their whole society changed thereafter. And the one I want to look at is the agricultural uh, industry, which is this little diamond-shaped one. But you can see between the 60s up to the late night, uh, towards uh, the year 2000, the amount of agricultural employment decreased sharply. And manufacturing, meaning factory-based work, started to increase. So the demographics were changing, and employment was changing, and along with that came lifestyle changes. They started to eat different foods. We know that people in developing societies eat a lot less animal products, a lot more basic cereal products. And what we can see in South Korea was that this started to change as they became much more affluent. And the one to look for here is the, the consumption of cereals, which is the top one, which dropped dramatically over a 40-year period. And at the same time, the consumption of animal-based products started to go up. And of course, with animal-based products, there was saturated fat. And so, not only the diet change, but so also the amount of fat in the diet that led to, to uh, disease development. So if you look at this, the important thing here, looking at their uh, energy intake, is the proportion of their food intake that came from fat. In 1970, it was, I reckon, less than 5%. By the end of the 20th century, it was up to about 10 to 12%, almost doubled, their, their fat intake. And along with that, again, this is just demonstrating the same sort of thing, comparing South Korea to Japan and China, which are all seeing the same sort of pattern. But along with that, they were boosting. So suddenly, Children at the age of eight are starting to show greater levels of obesity. Children at the age of 17 showing a similar pattern. And what happens alongside this was that the causes of death started to change. So the good news was South Koreans were less likely to die of infectious disease. It dropped very sharply. But causes of death due to cardiovascular disease and neoplastic disease started to rise and so you can see that as our working life changes, our affluent, le affluent le level changes, our diet changes, obesity levels change, and our causes of death start to change. We've seen the same thing happening here for less drastic reasons, but it's the same pattern almost anywhere you look in the world. This study done by Prentice and Jeb uh, quite a few years ago was looking at the amount of activity we had, comparing it to obesity levels. And you can see that as obesity began to rise from the 1950s onwards, we saw a, a total decrease in food intake, but a much more sedentary lifestyle developing. This is the number of hours spent watching TV, and this is the number of uh, private cars per household. You can't prove that it causes it, but the correlation seems to be very clear. And in, in trying to answer the question, is this a corporate success or a personal failure? What I've tried to do so far is explain why, to some extent, responsibility for being obese might actually be beyond an, an individual's control, be it genetic, hormonal, or social. Let's look at some of the more corporate issues, because the food industry has quite rightly been held responsible for many large aspects of the obesity debate. 
And in Paul Roberts' book, The End of Food, he analyzes the food industry and the development over the past 50 years and projects where it's about to go. And, you know, breakfast cereals like the one in the, in the top box, Kellogg's Frosties, really, for me, is the devil's own food. There's nothing good to be said about it except your kids will eat it. And when you start to analyze what we're actually doing to our children, I, I find it quite horrifying. The reason why processed food is such a large part of our diet is because that's what is being made for us and that's what we're encouraged to eat. For the simple reason that added value can only be created in food if it's processed. There's very little profit to be made in a carrot. But if you dice it, season it, add it to something, put it in a pretty package and sell it in a shiny supermarket, suddenly it's worth a lot more money. So we are encouraged and have been encouraged over generations now to move away from fresh food towards more processed food. So the reason for this is adding value for the manufacturers and retailers. But consider this, in an average box of our breakfast cereal, only 20 pounds of every pound we spend is actually accounted for by the ingredients in the box. Only 20%, we're paying a fortune for relatively little. Another 20% goes towards packaging, advertising and endorsements, and the rest of course is markup as it goes from manufacturer to wholesaler to retailer. But the amount of money spent on encouraging us to eat these products, particularly the first year of a cereal launch, is about 50% of annual revenue. And one of the reasons why I hate breakfast cereals so much is because of the portion sizes. Have a look on your back, the back of the box of uh, cereal tomorrow morning if you have some. And you'll find that a recommended portion is 30 grams. Measure at 30 grams, put it in your bowl, and you'll be astonished at how little there is. You'll definitely have a second. And yet, with these companies are putting out these boxes saying that, you know, if one child eats one portion of uh, whatever cereal it is, this will be part of a, a calorie balanced diet. And it's complete tosh. Because if you watch your kids, if you have young kids, they never stick to the prescribed amount of cereal. They're high fat, high sugar, and encourage their kids into bad dietary habits from the very start of every day. So, to me, the food industry has a great deal of corporate responsibility. As I said, heavily processed foods mean greater added value. Increased markup encourages more advertising. But not surprisingly, the food which is advertised the most is the food which actually we could do without it. Sweets, snacks, Cereals, soft drinks only account for 20% of our consumer spend, but account for 50% of the advertising spend. This is what they want us to eat more of. And all this pretense that they're encouraging us to eat a healthier diet is undermined at every step when we recognize what they're actually doing quietly behind the scenes. In comparison, fruits, vegetables, poultry, and fish, which accounts for 41% of consumer spend, attract significantly less advertising. They want us to eat the wrong things. And if you compare the consumption of meat in the West over the past 50 years, again, it's quite astonishing because the vastly improved production methods which have allowed us to create food much cheaper than ever before is also encouraging us to eat more than ever before. Comparing 1945 to 1980, this is in the US, meat consumption increased per annum from 125 pounds to 195 pounds, which is far more. Similar time period, corn production, which then goes into corn syrup, which has added so much of our processed food, uh, that trebled 
whereas the world population only doubled at the same time. And you would think this would be a solution to the world's uh, starvation problem because it did increase the amount of food available per person across the world from just under 2,500 calories to 2,700, which should mean none of us go hungry. But in actual fact, most of it still stays in the US, and the average amount of availability in the US increased over the same time period from 3,100 to 4,000 kilocalories per person per year. So we know that we're consuming more than we need, and the results are plain for everyone to see. And I think a large part of the responsibility for this has to be down to the aggressive marketing strategy of the food industry. Now, my own involvement in this subject led me to found the National Obesity Forum in 2000 to raise awareness of obesity as a, as a health risk, as a medical entity, among health professionals. And I very quickly realised that this was going to take me to places where I hadn't expected. It became a much bigger issue for the public. It became an issue for government. And I started to work very hard in 2004 for what I, I coined a National Obesity Institute because there are so many bodies who have a role to play in this. And if you just look at NGOs, you can see them all listed here. These are organisations which signed up to the concept of a National Obesity Institute. But what I hadn't realised in my naivety is that corporate responsibility for this problem goes beyond those who are just making money out of it. There are so many egos involved, so many interests that large NGOs want to retain. And in actual fact, not, perhaps not fair to say not one, but very few of the bodies mentioned here really wanted to see a national body because they all wanted to keep their own corner of the market for themselves. And from a position 10 years ago of knocking on the doors of these organisations and trying to explain to them why obesity was a problem, why diabetes UK should take it seriously, why the British Heart Foundation should take it seriously, they then realised that there was a large part of the charitable market in it for them. And so they decided to, shall we say, retain their position of uh, authority in that area. And the National Obesity Institute never happened. And I got a phone call the day before the publication of the white paper on public health and obesity about uh, three years ago. And Imogen Sharp from the, the Department of Public Health Forum said, I want to reassure you that your National Obesity Institute is in the white paper. So I don't know what it's going to look like. We're not yet decided which shape or form it's going to take, but it will be there in some form. What I've known now, of course, is that it was never intended to be a distinct body, but rather it was meant to be some kind of alliance with other agencies that was going to tackle this problem of obesity on a national level. And this is what we started to see um, when, when Change for Life was launched at the end of last year, and I'll talk about that in a few moments. But I started to research what other countries had done to try and reverse the obesity problem in their own country. And uh, with the help of a, a few experts in the, in the area, I looked at hundreds of uh, published papers to try and see who had done what and wasn't successful. And I merely pick out three to demonstrate a point. My point is that actually public health, as yet, has failed to, be, to learn how to address the issue of national behavioural change. When you look at the impact that the Richard Dawes paper, I think it was in uh, 52, on smoking had, uh, 
towards our ultimate recognition that this was a serious health problem. It took 50 years before government legislation was introduced to limit smoking in public places. And so I, I'm not naive enough to expect that we can change the world in a few years when it comes to obesity. It may take several generations, but it's good to look back to see what other people have attempted. And this one particular project in Sweden, as you can see, it lasted for five years. It was population-based, and their purpose, and very few of them were, were trying to tackle obesity, because that wasn't the main perceived problem there. It was cardiovascular risk factors. But the aim was to prevent cardiovascular risk factors, and everyone at the ages 30, 40, 50, and 60 were invited for an assessment. It worked out about 260 people a year, and what they found over five years, there was no change at all. All the efforts had come to nothing. This study done in Israel was again community focused, and it was looking at again the control of cardiovascular risk factors. Again, it was over five years, 500 subjects with a control population, interestingly, a lot of primary care involvement. They did see some success, weight decreased by one pound in the average adult compared to the control. At least it was going in the right direction. There was an overall decrease in body mass index. Then you have other projects like this one in Switzerland, where again, it was very big, there was mass media involvement, local committee involvement, and also they involved restaurants and, and food producers. It was a very comprehensive attempt to change the demographic. And what they found in this study was that the intervention cities, the BMI actually increased compared to those in the control. So I don't think overall we're very good at it. But I, I do want to say that I, as much as I've enjoyed my career in general practice, if I could go back 25 years, I'd be very tempted to go into public health. Because I do think that public health is where we're going to bigger bang for our buck, so to speak. And I do remember a colleague telling me he was leaving general practice to go to public health, and I was astonished. What a retrograde step that was. I'll tell you what, I think I might swap with him now. What a very forward-thinking step that was. Change for life. The result of the government's attempt to try and deal with the obesity epidemic. A social marketing campaign on a scale never seen before. Launched at the end of last year, £270, that's £270 million of investment over several years. Government-led, industry-supported, and I don't think anyone could have failed to have seen the adverts for I think they're great. These little cartoony figures by the same people that developed uh, Wallace and Gromit. And it has been absolutely everywhere. And my own small involvement with the program was just advising as to whether I thought it would be impactful, whether I thought people would respond to it, whether we should call children very overweight or obese, whether we should write to the parents, all these little things. But actually, I do think this is a very sincere, well-intended attempt to try and reverse the trend that we're currently seeing. And it's, it's tried to use uh, celebrity endorsement. Here's Alan, Alan Johnson with the Leeds Rhinos, which apparently are very famous in Leeds, but, you know, maybe not everyone's cup of tea. And I can reassure you that Alan Johnson's own approach to this problem is that he has taken it very seriously. Well, this is the guy that has uh, hosted the WHO conference on the social determinants of ill health as the British government is taking the lead internationally on recognising that our environment and our social structure impacts on disease. So I do think our government is taking it seriously, although perhaps later 
and then move it on with. And part of the advertising has been on billboards, as you can see in this one, it's on the side of um, telephone box. And when it was first launched, I think it was November last year, I was absolutely staggered to be driving past um, a bus stop. And there were three advertising holdings on this bus stop. And one that was changed for life, and number three that was changed for life, and in the middle it was hamburgers, two for 99p special offer. By the same company who were part funding the Change for Life campaign. And that's what I see is the duplicity of those who have got something to gain from this. It's the appearing to go along with government, uh, the government's agenda, appearing to, to go along with what the NGOs are crying out for, to advertise against the public consumption of unhealthy foods from the scale that they do, and at the same time, so blatantly encouraging us to do exactly the opposite. I do think they share some corporate responsibility. And Doug also mentioned that I was involved in making a documentary called The World's Biggest Boy. Um, oh, he's pretty big, I have to say. This is Jambic, and he's seven years of age. And I was asked to go and see him, and you know, my, my, my life has been very colourful. I had this phone call. We're looking for an international expert on obesity. We want someone who knows all about childhood obesity to go to uh, Russia to find out what's wrong with this kid. We need the best guy in the country. Unfortunately, he's not available. <laughs> but would you mind coming? And I, I said, absolutely I'll come. Definitely, I can do that. I had no idea what I was going to do. It's beyond me. So part of my whole process of bluffing my way through this was making sure I had a very large international telephone bill and speaking to real experts back in the UK to try and help me what to do with this guy. And the idea was that I would go out as the great British doctor, work out what was happening to this poor child, put him on some kind of diet, go back six weeks later and see how many stones he'd lost through the way to the British medical profession. On my first night there, I really was astonished because I had a conversation with his mother and over there she said to me, through so translator of course, have you ever, no, so do, do, do you work with a lot of children as big as Jambic? Oh yes, I said, we've got lots of Carlton. Yeah, 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 do it. She said, have you ever met any bigger than Jambic? I said, probably not. And the biggest smile crept over her face. And I thought, hmm, wrong reaction. Should have been a few tears, should have been a bit of concern, but there was a pride, there was a satisfaction. And the conversation went on. And here's some details on Jambic. Born into a town called Nalchik, which is about an hour's drive from Chechnya. The year before I went out there, they had um, an Islamic uprising. 25 people were shot in the town centre. It was a very militarised area. And to say that people carried guns is, is no exaggeration. Before I was allowed to go, I had to go on a survival training course run by ex SAS men. And I can tell you, as well as being an obesity expert, I'm also an expert on how to dodge mortar attacks, how to dress bullet wounds, and how to deal with your Russian captors when you've been kidnapped. Fortunately, none of that happened but I did meet an interesting little, little boy. Seven years of age, one metre forty high, 105 kilograms, BMI 54, not adjusted, just straightforward 54. And I spoke to his parents, his mother, right? I spoke to uh, his extended family, I spoke to his family doctor, I spoke to 
people in the town that he came from. And he was a real celebrity. Because in Cabardino Bocari, which is right next to Georgia, you perhaps remember that in the Olympics, the wrestling's always won by the Georgians. And it's the same in, in Cabardino Bocari. Wrestling is the national sport. So the bigger you are, the stronger you are, the more likely you are to do well. He was a, a local hero. And his cholesterol, I found out, when it had last been measured, was 6.8. His leptin levels were 48, which is in keeping with a boy who's very obese. His testosterone, though, was 3.5, which didn't seem right. We've had a GTT done. Fasting glucose 7.5, two early 8.9, so impaired glucose tolerance. The bone density of this seven-year-old was measured when he was three, and it was found to be that of a 13-year-old. So at the age of three, with the bone development of a 13-year-old, and at the same time, he had an echocardiogram, and his heart was the size of a 12-year-old. Adrenal hyperplasia, hypergonadism. And of course, something I come across every day in my work in Carlton in general practice, so I immediately knew what to do about it. I phoned a friend. And I had some ideas about what was going on here, but the biggest clue was his mother's reaction. When I spoke to his doctors in his hometown, one of them whispered to me off air that she thought he might be being fed anabolic steroids, which I was horrified at the very thought. So rather than put this young boy on a diet, I had to go away and uh, take a sample of urine to test it for steroids, which I can tell you was negative. And four weeks later, I went back to the American hospital in Moscow where we sent them to have further tests. And I asked one of the experts there if she thought it was at all possible that this boy could have been given anabolic steroids. And she said, it's not the first time I've come across it. It happens in Russia. And I said, you know, if this was happening in the United Kingdom, this would be considered a form of child abuse. And she said, there is no such law in Russia. And this young boy was being groomed, I choose my word carefully, for life as a sumo wrestler, and was being aided on that path by the use of anabolic steroids. And when challenged, his mother fell out with me immediately, as you can imagine, and there was no real conclusion to the program. The reason why I've included it today is because the question was, is it personal responsibility? So who's responsible here? It's not the sibling though, surely. Is it his mother for giving him anabolic steroids? Maybe she is responsible. Is it his society that encourages sibling-olds uh, to be very large, that actively worships and adores this boy wherever he goes? I mean, you walk down the street with him, people stop to take pictures. Is that famous? And if his mother is giving him steroids, is she responsible? Or is she just a victim of her own society? born into a Muslim culture, which is a single parent, which is considered to be shameful in any case, lives in abject poverty. And guess what you get if you make a documentary with a British TV film, film crew? You've got a vast fortune. And I won't tell you how much it was, because it's confidential, but if she and her two boys got enough money, but if she was a typical Nottingham resident, she'd be able to buy a three-bedroomed detached house with one single down payment from one documentary. And she's made one in Britain, she's made one in Japan, I believe she's made one in the States. Is she responsible, or is she a victim? I don't know. The story goes on. We'll never know probably what happened to Jambi. And coming towards the end of what I want to say is looking at 
another aspect of corporate responsibility. When I first started talking about this problem, a lot of people said it was skin-mongering, that there wasn't really a big issue. And so there was a bit of a panic on for a while. Although somebody did point out to me that if you wanted to cause a panic today, the best way to do it would be to go on the underground in London and sneeze into your sombrero. But in these days, it was the whole shadow of obesity that was lurking. And I remember this headline came out. It was the miracle anti-fat pill free in the NHS, which raised expectations among the public that there, were, there was a cure for their obesity problem. And perhaps at the time I thought that this would be a huge part of what we could do, but as time goes by you start to realise that it's a very small part of what we can do. And part of the responsibility for the obesity problem does lie with those who have much to gain financially from making it into a problem. There's no doubt it's a medical problem. There's no doubt that it causes suffering and uh, premature morbidity. But sometimes the way in which it's publicised carries a weight of responsibility too. This slide happens to look at Ramonabad. It could look at perhaps any weight loss drug that exists. And you can see, which you've seen before, that if you're on the drug, you will lose some weight compared to uh, those who are not, this is those who are on the drug. And then when the drug is removed, those who are taken off it regain their weight, and those who continue on it maintain most of that weight loss. And one of the issues I've always had is that why do we consider someone who has an obese problem to be cured after 12 months, but if they're suffering from type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure, we consider it a lifelong problem. And I really think there's a great inequity here. And if there's one thing I've tried to do with these is to stand up for the the rights of people who have obesity, who deserve treatment, that they should be considered appropriate for treatment both in primary care and in secondary care. So maybe there's another responsibility here that falls to ourselves. Are we, as clinicians, accepting our responsibility to help these patients, or are we abdicating responsibility? And then, all of a sudden, on the morning of the 1st of January 2006, my professional world came crashing down on page 3 of the Observer. Obesity group found that quits in a row over drugs from cash. And this came about because of my increasing concern at the undue influence of the pharmaceutical industry and the direction of various NGOs. In my own case, the National Obesity Forum, which I had run as chair and president for five years, and tried to steer a pretty straightforward ship and do things as I thought were, which were ethically based and professionally sound. As I relinquished responsibility, I saw that it was starting to move in directions that I didn't like. It was orientated very much towards the use of medications for obesity and activities were directly related to funding provided. And so I, I had to spill the beans. It caused a fuss. I've never been invited to speak to a national conference funded by a pharmaceutical industry since, draw your own conclusions but it's a story that still goes on. And I think we really do need to question how we deliver healthcare, how we promote different disease areas, how we deliver postgraduate education, because there's certainly no such thing as a free lunch. And I, for one, uh, I'm very open about it. I've spoken at hundreds of conferences funded by the pharmaceutical industry, and I've enjoyed the experience very much, but I think there's a fine line between accepting hospitality and funding and another to actually do their bidding. And I think we need to be very careful in drawing the line in the correct place. So, finishing up, 
This is how good I am in my practice. Some of you might have seen this slide before. This is Alison. And Alison wanted to, me to help her to lose weight. And I was so good at it, over the next 18 months, she went from 122 kilograms to 74 kilograms. Alison, and even after shot, I need to show other people how well you've done. Well, I'll give you this picture, the doctor said, but I'm a bit embarrassed because, well, I've got leather trousers on. And I said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, when I was losing weight, I promised myself when I reached the target weight, I'd buy myself some leather trousers. And what, why are you bothered? I can't wear them anymore. I said, why not? Because I've lost even more weight. And she went, she lost so much weight, a huge success. And unfortunately, this was, I guess, about 2002, 2003. If Alison were to come into the room now, this is how she looked. All the weight we gain, back to where she is. She wants you to know this because she wants people to realize there is no cure. There's management, but there is no cure. Why is she back like this? Is it her fault? Or is it because she's in the same relationship, the same job, the same housing estate, the same kids, the same boredom, the same diet, and so on and so on? Whose responsibility is it really? So my approach to weight management is very simple. Don't drag the patient in kicking and screaming. They've got a lot to come of their own volition. This picture was actually taken from a report about cops in Detroit who'd become so heavy that their bosses were refusing to pay them bonuses because they couldn't run fast enough to catch the bad guys. But I, I interpret it another way. You know, your patients, if they want to lose weight, I'm very happy to work with them. I will never force them to do it. It's just not worth the effort. And for me, it's about finding ways to adapt your lifestyle. It's not about banning your favorite foods. Blocks will drink beer. We all like a bit of chocolate. We all want a trip to the takeaway once in a while. And to suggest that we stop doing these things completely means we're bound for failure. It's about getting smart and finding ways that we can lessen our total calorie intake without it hurting. It's not about becoming an Olympic athlete, and as much as I think the opportunities at the 2012 Olympics offer in terms of highlighting physical activity, it will not solve the obesity problem. Very few of my patients are likely to run in the 400 meters. It's about being more active at any opportunity, taking the stairs instead of the lift, getting off the bus or stop early, parking your car in Tesco's where the people with the new cars park them, far away, right? And walking back to the supermarket. Simple things like that. And lastly, it's not about going without, it's about a healthy diet, it's about increasing the amount of fruit and vegetables and decreasing the amount of fat in your diet. It doesn't have to be a painful experience. When I was asked to give this talk, it really challenged me because I wanted to say something that was a wee bit different to what I've said before. And I, I think the message I would like to convey to you is that in answer to the question, is it corporate success or is it personal failure? The answer, of course, is that it's both. We all have a role to play in this as individuals, as clinicians, as members of a greater society. And we've all got some, something that we can change that would benefit perhaps ourselves, our family and others. And if I look at my own involvement in this, well, I guess I am ultimately a personal failure because I've not achieved as much as I wanted to do, and much of what I've tried to do has fallen on deaf ears. But maybe the biggest mistake is to do nothing for fear of being able to do too little. Small steps, big changes. Do it for long enough, every long journey begins with one step. Thanks very much.
Again, thank you, thank you very much. That's been a very challenging and quite provocative talk. I've enjoyed it hugely. Uh, we've got definitely some time for some questions. Um, whilst the microphones are going, I just want to say that, that Daily Mail thing that you showed um, about the drug available in the NHS, I have, obviously it had been heralded a bit. That morning in surgery, I had three people come to see me to say they wanted to have that, have that drug. That was the thing that was going to solve, solve their problems, which of course it wasn't. Um, just a little anecdote about that. So, Dr. Watson. Um, a great perspective on things. Um, you mentioned uh, Richard Dodd for 50 years. We were only discussing over supper, uh, a healthy option for supper. Um, that, uh, that, that really, in a way, I mean, if you look at it now, we accept the smoking bans, we accept the smoke, the ban on advertising, and there's all the personal choice arguments brought up. But why aren't we doing more to legislate, if you like, or to actually reduce media input because in a way the present generation is a write-off. We really have to start with children now uh, and the education cycle. Yeah, good question. Um, I think two facets to, to my answer. The first is that uh, politicians can really only get away with what the public wants. And the reason, one reason why it took 50 years is because we needed to be in a position where the public would accept the limitation of smoking in public places and really it's been a, a huge success with very little dissent. Uh, the other reason is the huge power that the food industry has. Uh, a friend of mine who's uh, an MP and a GP uh, thought about becoming involved in tackling the food industry and was told from on high within the Labour Party that on no account was it to tackle the food industry. They are hugely powerful and uh, influence society in ways that we don't really appreciate. I mean, if you consider that one pound in every eight that's spent in this country goes through the till at Tesco's, you realise what clout they've got. So, Legislation is a way forward. The, the news this week, or was it last week, that restaurants are going to comply with ingredient lists and reducing fat and salt content is great. But in my experience, the food industry do nothing voluntarily unless there's a threat of uh, legislation behind it. If you had uh, a million pounds, what would you um, spend it on in this arena? That's like an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> a million pounds for the whole country? Or for what we could muster to spend on this if we needed to in nothing to do. That's a, it's a good question because I, I have a difficulty with it. Um, and I'm going to just take a little while to answer this one. Um, somebody asked me recently, would change for life make a difference to the obesity problem? And my answer was no. And this is at a, a Department of Health conference, and I could see the look of horror on the Department of Health's face when I said no, it wouldn't make any difference. And I had to explain why. If we consider the whole obesity problem to be like a, a tidal wave, if you, want to, if you want to block that tidal wave, then throwing in a large sandbag will do nothing more than cause a ripple. And I think change for life is like a big sandbag. If you throw in enough simultaneously, gradually build a momentum and you might just hold it back. So unfortunately any, any um, program, any intervention that we see is usually too small and too short term. And therefore it's funding for a short while. We don't see any benefit. Funding is stopped. We have to just have the confidence to make small changes and keep building on it. So what would I do with a million quid? I would make sure that children knew exactly what to eat and how to prepare it. Because I think that's where our best hope lies. Adults to a great extent 
I stopped. The greatest hope that lies for the future generation, and we may as well start at the beginning. But a million quid wouldn't get me anywhere, so I need more thinking. <laughs> Thanks very much. Mo- moving on from that, just to depress you more as an obstetrician. Um, in one generation in Nottingham, we've noticed a more than doubling of obese and overweight primates. Um, and one thing that we know, we've noticed particularly is the desensitisation. That is, we look at a woman and think, oh, she's not too bad. And actually, when we calculate her BMI, she's 35 or whatever. And we've got so used to the very large women that we sort of don't recognise the smaller obese women. Have you any idea how we can address that sort of desensitisation? Hmm. I, I did the loop to that when I talked about um, people who, who have friends who are very overweight and more likely to be overweight. I remember um, hearing a politician who woke me up over breakfast one morning saying uh, he didn't understand what all the fuss was about uh, because he said, look around here, none of us are obese. And I knew the guy and I knew he was obese, but his perception of what obesity was is very different. We think of obese as being morbidly obese now. Um, I don't know how you would change that. I mean, that's, a, that's an area that is beyond me. But I think raising awareness is very important. I do recognise now that children are much more aware, and we have, a, we have a very difficult path to try to with children, making them aware but not oversensitive to it. But I think making children aware of what health is like, what a healthy body looks like, and the benefits of being healthy. Not that they will avoid a heart attack at 55, but they'll be better at sport, or more attractive to the girls. Things like that, I think, are more pertinent to them. So just making sure that people understand the benefits, and if you want to start influencing uh, what what occurs in the media, uh, how we perceive super uh, thin uh, models to look like, whether that's good or not, and how we address the problem of the super obese. But that's that's a, a big ask, I have to say. Ian, you've answered this question to a certain extent by answering Chris Packham's question, but are you disappointed by the apparent lack of priority that practice-based commissioning clusters place on obesity and its management? And if you are, what, how would you advise us to change our emphasis in this area? Ten years ago, my beating on the drum was all about the need for medical treatment because it didn't exist. And as it started to creep into the medical routine of what we do, part of the reason why I fell out with uh, the National Obesity Forum that I found was they were not prepared to move beyond treatment into prevention. And actually, what I would rather see, if that's a straight choice, is more work on preventing obesity rather than treating it. I think treatment is very important. There's no point in telling my patient tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock that you'll have to wait until the PCT helps to prevent it, love, if she's sitting there with a BMI 40, she needs help today. So having something within practice, some local specialist centre, is very helpful. But actually, I wouldn't like to do that at the expense of preventative strategy. Dr. Demelis. Quite a lot of men and women are concerned uh, that despite not eating a tremendous amount, there's selective um, um, positioning of extra volume or weight of muscle or tissue in certain places. In other words, the women might be concerned about 
of the abdomen. Um, I'm not sure about the body. But there is this selective thing that occurs. Is there anything known about that? Whether tissues do selectively increase in certain parts of the body or not? Well, we know that men have to, uh, you know, very naturally collect uh, excessive fat around their waist, the so-called beer belly, which is not so much to do with beer, but just calories in. What we're also seeing is that women who have traditionally been pear-shaped with the fats going around their buttocks and their hips are increasingly developing abdominal obesity as well. When it comes to weight loss, there is nothing that I know of that will specifically target abdominal obesity. If you lose weight, you have to lose it generally, and part of it will come off from uh, your visceral fat. Uh, the other issue I notice a lot is people think that as they are dieting and exercising, they think they're not losing a lot of weight because they're exercising so much and they must be gaining a lot of skeletal mass. Actually, it takes an awful lot of work to improve your musculature, and I think most of them are deluding themselves. Dr. Watson. I just want to raise the question that uh, Chris Packer wants a million for his preventative programs, but given patient choice, want the patients want the million for bariatric surgery? Well, you know, I guess it's about uh, getting that balance right, isn't it? I mean, in 1999, there were 200 bariatric procedures across the country, and last year, I think there were 3,000 gastric bypasses alone. Uh, so it's increased dramatically. Uh, it's a more cost-effective therapy uh, for the cost of, I think, about seven or eight thousand pounds uh, compared with medical treatment. After about seven years, bariatric surgery becomes a more cost-effective option. Um, but it's a last resort, and I certainly wouldn't like to have it. Uh, it it's, it's quite a disabling procedure to have. Mm -hmm. It's a very antisocial procedure to have, and it's not for everyone. But it's something I would support uh, patients having access to, because if it is a last resort, it should be there. But it, it's not the end solution. Right, thank, thank you very much. Um, I'd now like to call on Professor Ian MacDonald to give the vote of thanks. I think this is, this is an evening for people called Ian to be talking. There are about five of us at dinner. But, uh, um, Ian, it's actually, as you said, it's, it's about the first time you've spoken in Nottingham, which is, is partly our fault because there are many of us in Nottingham with interest in obesity, but we've never actually managed to get everyone in the same room at the same time to talk. Um, what you've presented tonight is, has been a fantastic uh, coverage of the, of, the, of the area, clinical insight, but most importantly, this last slide, which actually shows that the, the answer for the future is not just a medical answer, it's a societal answer. Yes, public health has a part to play, but local government, individual choice, and persuading people that they, they have a part to play in this. And, and on behalf of the MedCare, I would just encourage you to carry on making a nuisance of yourself in this area, because, you know, it, it, the GP fraternity has, a, has a, an, an important influence in this, but you've got to get all the politicians coming into this, get all the NGOs to, to lose their, their, their sort of self-sustaining pride and actually work together. I've been involved in three of the ones that were on your list, and you're absolutely right. The people you talk about are still at the head of them and are still refusing to talk to other people. So, so on behalf of everyone in the audience, thank you very much for a wonderful uh, presentation, and please carry on doing a, a great job. Thank you.